You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. The scripture reading today is from Revelation 3, starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Vandermeer's church family. Good to see you this morning. Hope you're doing well. The fact that uh, our attendance has been so high this morning, I'm just going to go on a limb and say you got an extra hour of sleep last night. So hope you're rested. Grateful you're here. In fact, we're so committed to this at Northway, we're just going to keep going back an hour every week so that by next year we'll be a couple years behind. It'd be great. Uh, If you got a Bible, Revelation chapter 3 is where we're at again this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat somewhere in front of you. That's our gift to you. Um, And uh, we're continuing in our series here, Letters to the Church. We're looking at these seven churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus wrote to in the first century and communicated to them both encouragement and correction towards what faithfulness should look like in Christ's church in a day of compromise. And if you think about this map we're on, where we've been so far as this one letter would have been delivered by a courier on a route hitting each of these churches. We started in southwest, on the southwestern coast of Turkey, and we looked at the church at Ephesus and looked at faithfulness in the area of love. And then that letter went up to the church at Smyrna and looked at faithfulness in the area of suffering. And from there, went all the way up north there to the church at Pergamum, where we looked at faithfulness in the area of worship before we then turned southeast, came to the church in Thyatira, looked at faithfulness in the area of work. And then last week, we were down in Sardis, the church at Sardis, looking at faithfulness in the area of truth. This week, we're going to go southeast a little bit more uh, to the church that is in Philadelphia. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, I did not pick this message 
for this day in the sovereign hand of the Lord where the Houston Astros spanked the Philadelphia Phillies. So be it, God's will be done, all right, this morning. But that is not the Philadelphia that we are talking about in this letter. We are going to the OG uh, Philadelphia way back in the day. This is the furthest east of all the churches. This is the one that is furthest east. And uh, it, when you think about the churches, um, the city's background, much like we've been doing in every one of these uh, churches, there's some context here that's helpful. One, this is a city that was founded by two brothers um, who deeply loved one another, uh, Eumenides II and Attalus II. Attalus named this city out of love for his older brother. Thus, the, in Greek, the city of Philadelphia came to mean the city of brotherly love. And so this is how it originated. It was founded as a city to promote uh, Greek values, Hellenism um, in the ancient world. And eventually, Attalus in 133 BC would will this city over to the empire of Rome, would hand the city and the territory over. And this city, though it was small, it was located on a major trade route, as is many of these other churches in the cities that they find themselves in. And, uh, but this one, because it was the furthest east, was known as the gateway city of the east. If you were coming from Europe and you were taking the royal road and you wanted to go into ancient Mesopotamia, you wanted to go into the Middle East, you would have to, the, you would have to come through Philadelphia. And it was the gateway to the east. Today, there's not much there. Uh, in this place. There's of the ancient ruins. Uh, the city is mainly buried below the modern city of Al-Shahir. And it, it, all that really exists in the city today, on the lower part of the city, there's really only two things that have been excavated. One of them is a Roman theater, and the other is a fifth century church that was um, dedicated to the apostle John. Those are the only two things that are in the lower city. But if you go up to the the city above, the Acropolis, where most of the city would have been, it is completely unexcavated. In fact, today, all that is there is just lush ground. You can even see the imprint of what is below. We know where the, the stadium is. We know where the, the upper Acropolis theater is because you can see it in the imprint of the side of the mountain. It's all underneath there. Apparently, it's just not worth the Turkish lira to try to excavate it at this point. And as you can see, though, the region is beautiful. It's lush. And the reason it's lush is because it's sitting on volcanic soil. And so the soil, the climate there, it's perfect, especially for growing vineyards. And uh, so eventually what puts this place on the map is its wine and its grape industry. It became the backbone of their economy there, which also meant that Dionysus would have been the patron deity that would have been worshipped there, the, the god of wine, the god of party. And uh, when, you, when you build an economy on this soil, the positives of volcanic soil, so you're going to get great grapes. The, the negative of this soil is it means you are sitting on tectonic plates that produce volcanoes. And so sure enough, this city would hit, be hit by not just one, but three major earthquakes in the early centuries that destroyed this city three times. Three times it had to be rebuilt and every time that it was rebuilt, they would rename the city after one of the emperors who would, um, who would fund them to a degree. But then that Roman Empire would do them dirty and they would rename the city back to Philadelphia. And this happened over and over again until finally they landed on Philadelphia and kept with it. But 
that's a bit of the history on just the geography, the city around it. When you think about the church in the first century, though, this is where some of this letter is going to come into play. Because in the first century, the gospel had gone out. The gospel had come to this area. The church had been established. But the church, similar to what we saw in Smyrna, was struggling with persecution. And not just persecution with Rome, internal persecution from the Jewish community that was around them. Um, You got to remember from our study in Smyrna several weeks ago, when it came to the diaspora, when, when the Jewish people were taken captive from the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and they were taken off into captivity, they were dispersed outside of Israel. And it's called the diaspora. And many of them, when they were allowed to return under the Persians, many chose to stay. And many actually just relocated. They packed up, took the royal road, and they ended up in small towns such as Philadelphia and decided to settle there. And uh, eventually, under the Roman Empire, as we mentioned, the Jewish community, Judaism, would become protected. It would be one of the few communities that were allowed to build their own synagogues um, and to worship Yahweh, for the most part, unhindered. They were one of the only communities that didn't have to give incense offerings to Caesar, didn't have to declare publicly that Caesar is Lord, because that would have been blasphemous to Yahweh. Um, And so a special status was given to them, but they had to tread lightly with it because at any moment it could be taken away. At any moment it could actually ruffle feathers uh, depending on who the emperor was. And so when Christianity comes along, which evolves from within Judaism, it is all Christianity is, is Judaism fulfilled. It's the promises that were given uh, in Jesus Christ. And so when Christianity comes on the scene, Rome just accepts them and protects them as a sect within Judaism. Uh, rightly so. And uh, Jews didn't like that, unfortunately. They didn't want to be associated with Christianity. And, uh, but there's nothing that much they could do about it as far as Rome was concerned. But it wasn't long before this Christian community, this minority Christian community, started going vocal with their faith and declaring boldly out loud that Jesus is Lord. It wasn't enough just to sit silent and not have to declare that Caesar is Lord. They went on the offensive to publicly evangelizing and declaring that Jesus is Lord. And this put a lot of eyes on Christianity, which by default put a lot of eyes on Judaism. And the Jews didn't like that because it was stirring up trouble for them. And so they wanted to distance themselves from Christianity all the more And so eventually, the Jewish community in Philadelphia, much like Smyrna, starts persecuting the Christians. And the synagogue officials in which both Jews and Christians would gather, the synagogue officials eventually kicked all the Christians out, forbid them from worshiping in the synagogues. And the synagogues weren't just worship centers, they were social centers. It's where the families came together. It's where much of your livelihood as a minority population would gather and be encouraged. And now all of a sudden you're removed from that community. And in that day, especially in Philadelphia and any other synagogue oriented community, they would have official ledgers within the synagogue, literal book where your name would be inscribed in that ledger. And that ledger is what proved to Rome who was protected under Judaism. If your name isn't in that ledger, then you are held in contempt and treason. You can be actually put to death for not declaring that Caesar is Lord. 
And so the Jews would begin to etch out the names of the Christians who were in those synagogue ledgers, leaving them vulnerable, leaving them unprotected, and uh, put their actual very lives in jeopardy. And uh, all because they chose to be faithful to Jesus and to go vocal with their faith, not to protect their status, protect their privilege, but to lay it all on the line because they wanted to declare the truth that there is only one savior and his name is Jesus Christ. And he came and he died for your sins and he rose from the grave to give you new life. And there is salvation only comes through him. And so transfer your trust, repent of your idolatry and put your trust in the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. And because they refused to go silent with that, it was costing them dearly. It meant all local doors were now closed to the Christians in Philadelphia. None were open to them and left them vulnerable. Imagine being in that position, feeling so excluded, so defeated. And then you get this letter from Jesus. Listen to the opening words of who Jesus is to this church, starting in verse seven of Revelation chapter three. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So right out of the gate, Jesus presents himself to a people who feel betrayed by their local authorities. And he says, you need to, something, you need to know something about me and you need to know something about my leadership. Three things. Number one, I am holy. I am totally other other than. Holy means totally set apart. I am so distinct. There is nothing like any authority that you have seen compared to mine. And I am true, secondly, fully trustworthy. I am completely unable to do wrong, including to you, my church. And I hold the key of David, thirdly. In other words, I am the one who has the authority over the house of Israel, not the synagogue officials. And in doing so, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22 talks about David's kingdom, talks about the city of Jerusalem and talks about a certain steward who was responsible, who was entrusted to steward the priorities of that kingdom, a man by the name of Shebna. And he had the keys of his master's kingdom, but he stewarded that kingdom poorly. He disregarded his responsibilities. And so in Isaiah 22, the keys of the kingdom are going to be taken from Shebna and they're going to be given to a new steward who's going to do what this guy failed to do named Eliakim. And you see the words of God to Eliakim in Isaiah 22 that says this, In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, Shebna. And I will bind your sash on him. And I will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. 
Now, interestingly enough, those words that were given to Shebna and to Eliakim in that day about a transfer of authority of the kingdom because of failure to steward responsibilities, Jesus quotes that passage in Matthew 16 to the disciples, to Peter and the boys, when he basically tells them, hey, the Jewish Pharisees, they have dropped the ball on leading Israel. They were supposed to steward the kingdom and they failed. They perverted it and they rejected their own Messiah. So I, who by the way, this is my kingdom, Jesus says, I'm taking the keys of the kingdom and I'm taking them from the Pharisees and I'm handing them to you. You're going to steward this for me through the church. And now Jesus quotes that text again to the church at Philadelphia. And he says, concerning these synagogue officials who have kicked you out of the synagogue and maybe out of Rome and they are shutting the door to you on that kingdom. No, those keys, they belong to me. And I am the one with the authority over my own kingdom, not the synagogue officials, not the emperors of Rome. I hold the key of David to the house of Israel. And therefore I am opening doors to my kingdom for you that nobody's going to have the authority to shut. And I can shut the doors that nobody's going to have the authority to open and get in. And so therefore he says in verse eight, I know your works to the church. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. The first thing that Jesus says to these people is I see you. How good does it feel as a follower of Christ when you're trying to be faithful and everybody else around you may be compromising, persecution may be coming on all fronts, feel like, is this thing even working? And Jesus to say to you, I know right where you are. I know exactly what you need. I've got you. And he says specifically, I see your works. I know what it is you're committed to. Two things in particular about their works that Jesus highlights. Number one, you have kept my word. To keep one's word literally means to observe it, to pay attention to it. As we saw last week, to guard it to watch over it. It means to take one's conviction about the truths of Jesus Christ in his word and to take those convictions and to put them into action, obedient action. In other words, in the midst of a Jewish culture that was rejecting Jesus and his word, in the midst of a Roman culture that was worshiping Zeus as the God of gods, the emperor as the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and worshiping even their patron deity of Dionysus here, the God of drunken party and pleasure, this church would not depart from God's word. They took their belief in Christ's commands and they melded it with obedience to his word in mission. This church would not trail mix the Bible. You know what I mean by that? When you just choose to pick out the M&Ms because they're so sweet and leave and discard the rest of it, the church would not trail mix the Bible. They took it all, the whole counsel of God, and they put it into action. 
They were like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 who received God's word with eagerness and who, who held God's word in high regard in a day of compromise. And what a picture, by the way, of what it means not to compromise, but to hold fast to God's word despite the cultural commentary of our day. It's a great lesson for us on biblical fidelity to watch every piece of our culture, even churches around us that may depart from the truth of God's word and yet Jesus to look upon us and say, but you have held fast to my word. And then secondly, not only have they held fast to God's word, he says, secondly, you have not denied my name. Meaning for a group that was heralding out loud publicly that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, when given the chance to retain their status, to retain their livelihood by simply going silent, they kept preaching the gospel. They would not compromise. They would not keep quiet. All the more they would declare the truth of God out of the love of God for those that have lost in need of the salvation of God. And so Christ says to this church that's full of evangelistic fervor in a day of great compromise and persecution, that's the kind of church that I can use. And even though you find yourself with just a little bit of power, oh, I am the one who is in charge of all the doors. And I will open for you what nobody else has the authority to open. You just keep glorifying me you keep holding fast to my word, you keep heralding the gospel and watch the opportunities that I'm gonna open up for you. He says in verse nine, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and they are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Good night. Do you catch what Jesus just called this Jewish synagogue? Again, same thing we saw in Smyrna, the synagogue of Satan. Now, this isn't an anti-Semitic statement. Jesus himself is Jewish. It's not anti-Semitic. It's just that to his people, they were meant to see their savior in Jesus Christ and they rejected him. And now they're persecuting his people. They don't represent the synagogue of, of God. No, they represent the intentions of Satan to rebel and even persecute their own savior and his church. God knows who are the false believers that are around them. And even though they are not faithful, this church is. And Jesus tells them, hold fast because the day is coming when I'm gonna make them known that I've loved you. When one day, as Isaiah even told in Isaiah 45, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess who the real God is, that day is coming. And even though you look like a fool right now, even though you're getting mocked right now for declaring that Jesus is Lord, the day is coming when I will vindicate all your suffering. And the whole world will know that it was me all along. And so therefore, in verse 10 he promises, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Certainly, this is a prophetic message, an assurance for not only this persecuted Christianity, but all of persecuted Christianity, that there is a day coming 
that through Christ's work on the cross and our holding fast to him, when all evil will be overthrown, even though all wrath will be poured out on the earth, God will spare us from this eternal judgment in Jesus Christ. And thus it's an encouragement for the church to keep persevering because we know how it's going to end. So keep persevering in the midst of this persecution. And as I'll show you in a moment though, I don't think this is just great future prophetic. I think this was present prophetic. Specifically, a promise that was made to the church in Philadelphia of the continued doors that Jesus was going to open for this church who was being faithful on mission. Jesus was going to open up more doors in the weeks and months and even years ahead for this church, even when all the world around them would fall down. We'll see that in a moment. But concerning this future judgment, though, that is coming, he gives them an encouraging reminder, us as well, in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, you and I read that and we go, coming soon, Jesus. Well, my goodness, it's been 2,000 years since you wrote this letter. How soon is soon? What am I missing in the math here? But understand, in the original language, it isn't necessarily speaking about Christ's return as imminent, meaning it's any day now. It means that when Christ's return, it will happen quickly. It'll happen immediately when it happens. Meaning, When Christ comes, there's not going to be time to process things. There's not going to be time to change your mind. It's not going to be time to do things differently in that future day. No, the time to repent is now. The time to turn to Jesus Christ is now because when that day comes, judgment will come swiftly. So in the meantime, to the church, before that day comes, hold fast Don't give in on your persevering that you end up trading that future reward for some compromised, cheaper worldly vision version that you can hold on to now. Don't live for what it is this day can give you. Live for that day that's already been assured for you, that's already been purchased for you. And he tells them the benefits that is theirs in Christ when that day comes, verse 12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Man, did you catch that promise? How good would that have felt? to this church to hear those words, when I come, after you've suffered for a little while, when I return, you, this tiny, invisible, excluded, marginalized, seemingly powerless church among the empire of Rome, if you won't sell out, if you'll hold fast and go all the way, one day, you won't just have your name etched into a ledger in the synagogue of Philadelphia that can be removed, you're going to have your name etched in the pillar of the temple of my God in eternity. You'll be a part of the foundation by which the glory of God dwells for all eternity and you'll never be cast out. Your name will never be etched out. 
It is as secure there as my conquering death and resurrection that purchased it for you. Man, it's beautiful news to a people who are weary here. You'll be a part of the new Jerusalem, the new temple where God will dwell. And he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Y'all, this is a letter from Jesus commending a church who would not compromise in their day in the midst of persecution, but instead would remain faithful to Jesus in both word and deed and evangelistic mission to go share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as such was promised that Jesus, as long as they stayed faithful to the Lord, Jesus would continue to open doors of opportunity for them for generations. Now listen, we have seen we have seen some churches in our day with some faithful histories of longevity, right? Just as several weeks ago, Northway celebrated 70 years as a church right here. Now that's come with a few different iterations, Northway Baptist Village Church, Northway Church as it is today, a lot of different iterations, but for 70 years, this church has had a faithful gospel witness right here on the corner of Marsh Lane and, and Walnut Hill. I mean, right here for 70 years. That's a beautiful thing. It's not been extinguished. Had a few times and the wick was down a little bit, but it has come back. The Lord has brought revival and resurgence right here as a gospel outpost. And there are other churches in the city of Dallas that go back 100 years, 150 years. Beautiful legacies of churches. But do you know what we know about the church at Philadelphia? How long do you think this church lasted in such a day of persecution and even more that was still to come? 100 years? 150 years? This church continued its presence for 1,200 years following this letter. Of all the seven churches, Philadelphia was the last one standing according to church history. 1,200 years, generations of Christians can trace back their spiritual lineage to this church in Philadelphia and their faithfulness to keep preaching the gospel. This was a church that was located in the city that was known as the gateway to the east. If you wanted to go eastward, you had to go through Philadelphia. Well, guess what door to the east stayed open? Christ's door here in the church of Philadelphia. Church plants, we can trace churches that were planted out of the church of Philadelphia. One of them as far as India came out of this church. Dozens and dozens and dozens of churches were planted out of the faithfulness of this church. And earthquakes would come and go. The city would come and go. The city would change hands and authority many, many times. But this church remained steadfast for generations. And in fact, as the timeline goes, what we find out is about the 600s that Islam comes onto the scene on the earth. By the 700s AD, Muslim conquests and caliphates start dominating this region and this area and the surrounding areas. Many Christian communities all around Turkey are forced to flee or convert Influence 
of the church in Central Asia begins to rapidly dissipate. But somehow, somehow, the church at Philadelphia kept its presence shining the light of the gospel while everyone around them slowly began to get taken out. It wasn't until 1342 AD that the Ottoman Turks came in and finally and totally conquered this land into what it is today. Many Christians at that that moment were given the chance to flee, convert, or die. It was said of Philadelphia in the 1300s, the only way that they could be put down was to slaughter them because they would not go silent with the gospel. One such account tells us that what ultimately took this church out is when all the men, women, and children were gathered into the worship center of where they gathered and they were all put to death by the sword. And that's ultimately what took out the church in Philadelphia, but only temporarily. They were faithful though, all the way to the end, 1,200 years. Today, in a population of 86 million people roughly, 96.2% of Turkey are followers of Islam. 99.1% are actually unreached with the gospel. There's a very, very small presence of the church there. But you know what the encouraging news is? That number is on the rise. Even today, there are gathered presence of Christians in the church in all seven of these cities where the original letters were written. We even have a member in our church right now who is one such Muslim living in Turkey when the gospel came to him and opened his eyes and his heart to believe and surrender to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, has been serving over there, ministering the gospel in his homeland to other Muslims, is back here right now with his family on furlough until he can get rested up and sent back over. Aslan's still on the move, hadn't stopped. Not even the Ottoman Turks could shut down the gospel. Not even the, the gates of hell can prevail against Christ's church. He is always faithful to his church. So should the church be faithful to him. And these doors are open. What an encouragement for us, y'all, to see a people without a building, without a budget, without governmental protection, without cultural clout, without power, without platform, and yet see the Holy Spirit sustain a gospel movement for 1,200 years making disciples of Jesus Christ. There is not one rebuke in this letter, only encouragement of God's blessing on a persecuted church who is being faithful in mission. And I did not prepare for this as well, but today happens to be the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. What a timely message for the church. What a timely message for Northway Church to be faithful in mission. May we find this kind of faithfulness in our day as well. So what do we do with this? Same thing we've been asking in each of these letters, doing some hard work of introspection, asking ourselves questions about our faithfulness to Jesus in the midst of compromise, both both individually and well as corporately as Northway Church. And I think one of the questions we have to ask that I've been asking myself this week, what are the barriers that may be hindering you or hindering me or hindering us 
in our evangelistic faithfulness and mission with the gospel of Jesus Christ right now. If you're anything like me, I would be willing to bet that maybe some of the fears could include, or some of the barriers could include one fear in general, just fear of being persecuted, fear of putting um, not just Jesus's name on the line, putting my name on the line with them that may cost me like we saw at Thyatira, or may cost you privileges and cost you comfort, cost you your work, whatever it may do, there is a fear that, that is within us a spirit of fear that wants to inhibit us from boldly proclaiming and preaching the good news of Jesus Christ as it was preached to us. And if we've talked about before, what fear is underneath fear is just worship. It's ascribing worth to something that we think is more powerful than Jesus Christ. And we take our fears, which is our worship, and we place it on this thing. And then we, so we stay submitted and in awe to it. It has to have power over us. But Jesus came to conquer that power. He didn't come to give us a spirit of timidity, but a power in himself through his death and conquering resurrection and triumphant ascension to the throne. He rules and reigns over all. We have nothing to fear. All things are to be subjected under his feet. And so therefore we are free now, not to be enslaved to the spirit of fear, but to be free to boldly proclaim for our King Jesus that others may hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe your barrier is time. Just go, I just don't have the time. I'm so busy. There's so many people and places I'd love to go proclaim the gospel to, but I just don't have the time. But you and I well know it's never about time. We all have the same amount of time as anybody else. The issue is about priority. We invest time into what we prioritize. And the truth is, is that on any given day, there are other idols, other things, other tyranny of urgent items that we feel need to get our most attention rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't mean that you've got to necessarily give up all the spheres that you're in. It just means we need to be obedient in the spheres that the Lord has placed us in, where we live, where we work, where we play and prioritize the gospel of Jesus Christ. And somebody asked, and I'll ask you right now, if you lost your pen right now that you write with, how long would you look for it before you replaced it? Probably not long, right? If you lost your car keys this morning here in the worship center, how long would you search for those? You'd probably search for a while because you ain't walking home. What if you lost your child? How long would you look for them? What if you lost your brother or your sister? How long would you look for them? So that's the heart of God. That's why in Luke 15, we get not just one, but we get three parables of Jesus showing how important the lost are. That he will search night and day. He'll leave the 99 to go find the one. And the same is to be true for you and I. We should always have the lost on our minds, on our hearts, fueled by obedience in Christ and what he's accomplished for us to go give away what he sent to us. Maybe for some, quite honestly, it's just knowledge. It's going, I just don't know, I don't know how. I don't know how to share my faith. I, I, I don't know how to articulate the message of the gospel that I've been called to share necessarily. I, don't, I wouldn't know what to say when I'm asked a bunch of questions about my faith that I can't answer yet. I go, man, welcome to the party. All of us start that way. But we don't have to stay that way. I assure you, if we're on an airplane right now and the pilot became incapacitated and they came back to one of us and said, hey, I need you to land this plane, we'd all wet our seats right there. 
I wasn't trained to do that. I don't know how to land a plane. But if I spend enough time in flight school, I spent enough time actually in routine practice flights over time. Yeah, somebody came in that situation. I'm in. Let's go. The same is true here. God has called the church to be equippers. That he, equi- he, he girds up and equips saints so they can go equip others to do the work of the ministry. That's what we do. That's what we're about here at Northway, about training and sending. And so I'd invite you, man, get involved. Get involved in one of our go groups. It's an immersive experience. We're going to learn not only to articulate the gospel, but actually get reps practicing it, sharing with lost people in our community and loving on them and getting all those opportunities there. Maybe it's those who are called to uh, overseas somewhere and you think, how do I bring the gospel into another culture? Man, we've got uh, a longer goer training program that you can be involved in for that, where we can train you long-term for those things. We have short-term classes that you can be a part of to help understand the story of scripture and how you and I fit into that. There is opportunities all around us. Come see us at the end of the service. We'd love to meet with you and love to point you towards one of those opportunities to get trained so we can be more faithful and more bold with the gospel. But you've already got your testimony. How long does it take to light up a room once a candle's lit? It's instantly. Once you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you have a gospel to share. Go share your story. Be bold. But honestly, you and I, probably the truest barrier that we face is just that of apathy, that of comfort. We're just too insulary. We're just of no need. We, we think, hey, we just sit back, man, this is Dallas. This is the Bible Belt, man. This is the buckle of the Bible Belt. There's so many churches everywhere. I don't know that I feel the need necessarily to get out there. And I go, first of all, just because there's a lot of churches in Dallas, doesn't mean that everybody's in those churches, first of all, is saved. You know the old adage, just because you go to a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going home to your garage tonight makes you a car. It doesn't work that way by osmosis. There are way more people in Dallas, I assure you right now, who do not know the Lord, who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And he's put us here to be the, the deliverer, to go give that good news away. Romans 10, how can they believe if they don't hear How can they hear if there isn't a message preached to them? How can there be a message preached to them if there's not a preacher who's been sent to go give it? The same gospel that came to us, God uses us as the vehicle to go deliver that gospel to somebody else. But I think that apathy, what's underneath that is just a hard issue. And I think what I have to do and I think what we have to do is we have to go back and we have to, again, remember our own salvation. Remember when somebody inconvenience themselves to come bring the good news to you and God opened. You remember what that's like? Man, I know for me, y'all, I got saved in a booth at Brahms in Richardson. You know those weird people that may go and knock on doors that they don't know and share the gospel? That was me. I was at home trying to dodge stalkers from the church that I had visited who were coming to my door all the time, finally cornered me one night, took me out and then shared the good news. Said, hey, you're a sinner in need of God's grace. And God so loves you that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for you, to shed his blood for you so that you can be forgiven of your sins. And he not only did that, he rose from the dead so that by trusting in him, he can give you new life transform everything, secure you for all eternity and use you for his glory and his kingdom. I was like, amen, I'm in, let's go. Let me eat my, finish my shake and let me eat my burger and then I'm in right now. 
If the Lord can reach me in a place like that, he can use us to go reach so many others if we only yield ourselves to him. If you are burdened to go, then let's do it together. And let's go and let's declare the good news, both here in the city of Dallas and we need to go to the places of the world that are unreached to go bring the gospel there. For those that are seeking to be faithful in mission, to you who feels alone and excluded in your Christian faith, seeking to serve faithfully, let me just remind you of Christ's words. Jesus sees you. He knows your works. Hold fast. Stay faithful. You're not crazy for what you're doing. Keep his word. Go proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and let's do it all the way to the end until he comes. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the needed reminder of what it means to be faithful on mission. To take the same gospel that we have put our trust in that has given us salvation and to now go be the hands and the feet of Jesus to go give it away to those who so desperately need it. Oh God, would you wean us from our comfort, wean us from being insulary, rekindle the affections of our hearts, stir us, Lord, that we might eagerly want to go and tell people who are far from Jesus that there is a Savior who has come for them too. God, may you glorify yourself in it as you strengthen Northway Church for mission. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.